Ever, um, ever play games as a child that um, there's a handful of you gather together, maybe it's marbles, maybe it's some other just fun little crazy game that doesn't have any hard and fast rules to it. And so you gather together, five, six, seven, eight of you. Maybe you got a big family. It's all within the family and the, the, the gang is playing. I watched this a few times within my own family with Kyle, Caleb, Ben, Brianna, the whole gang as they were playing different games um, over the years. And as the game begins to unfold, whether it's marbles or whatever it is, somebody doesn't like the way the game outcome is kind of progressing. So they institute a change of the rules in mid-flight. And typically, somehow they persuade the changing of the rules and the others kind of succumb to this person with all this new authority. And as the rules change, the game changes. And essentially, I, I, sometimes I kind of felt like the game back when I was growing up was who could change the rules at the end and end it real quick before somebody else came along and changed the rules again on you. Um, but it's an interesting thing that we have as, as humans. We always want to win and we always want to be on top in the process of these little things. Even as little kids, um, we see that happening often. And I, I just love watching our kids and, and as they were growing up and doing those things on the mission field and different games and uh, watching them establish hard and fast rules. And they, stri- they strove really to play quite fairly with one another. It's just that the elaboration of the rules that began the games was pretty amazing in our family. And they would go on for half an hour laying the ground rules and play for five minutes or something like that. And um, it was just a load of fun. But um, this story of David and Goliath reminds me a little bit about that. And I know you're thinking, David and Goliath, the rules, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, the stage is set. Uh, right in the very beginning, in those first 11 verses, um, you have the Philistines and you have the Israelites. And they are going to war. And there's the, the Valley of Elah, right between the two warring factions. They have gathered together and they're going to do their warlike thing. And they're going to come down and they're going to battle. And they're going to go back and have coffee breaks and go back down and battle. And it's just this ongoing process of battle that's going to take place. And so they've gathered And somewhere along about the eighth verse in this chapter, this mountain of a man, Goliath, who's over nine feet tall, has 125 pounds of mail on him, and he's got a 15-pound spearhead and this massive beam for a spear, and all these items, he's got people carrying his shields for him. He's huge. And he walks down into the valley, and he starts to cry out, and and he makes up rules. He says, all right, here's the scoop. Let's not have everybody kill each other. What a waste. What a waste of this. Let's, let's do this. I will represent the Philistines and you pick somebody from Saul's army. Certainly you've got somebody over there and we'll do battle. And if we win, you become our slaves. And if you guys win, we'll become your slaves. And I defy the God of Israel and his armies that somebody would come down and challenge me. And he, he lays the ground rules. And Saul and the Israelites cower and they're frightened and they step back. And I'm thinking, he didn't play when I played as a kid. (laughs) The Israelites weren't thinking straight. What in the world are they doing? I mean, yeah, the guy's a big dude. Big deal. Come down the next day and just pelt him with a thousand spears. Who who says we got to do things his way? But for whatever reasons, the Israelites decide to let Goliath, this mountain of a man, determine the battle rules. And he changes everything and says it's one-on-one. And certainly he's doing it because he knows there's probably not one guy over there that's going to be able to take me on. And it's logical 
The conclusion is logical, and the Israelites are seeing this as well, and they're just cowering back in this process. And they have lost focus. They've lost focus. They're no longer thinking about God, the God of Israel, who has protected them and led them through all these things. They've, they've lost focus of God. They've lost focus of their families and the responsibilities to their families. They, they're sitting there thinking, this guy's huge. There's nobody that can take this guy on. And they did just totally distracted by this mountain of a guy that's wandered down in there and decided to change all the rules. And like I said, I think, you know, I don't know what I would have done, but I just know there's a load of young kids that grew up in, in my area in North Carolina that we would have changed the rules on him real quick. And the next day he came down there, he would have been hightailing it out of there and we'd do things the way we wanted to do it, not the way he wanted to do it. And again, focus. The Israelites have lost their focus. David, young David, little shepherd boy, um, he doesn't know all this is happening. And his dad, Jesse, they're miles away. And along about verses 19, 17 through 19 in this chapter, um, they decide, hey, David, let's get some stuff together. Let's get some goods together. And we'll get some corn, roasted corn and things of this nature. And we're going to send it on in. I want you to take it in. And uh, take some extra special stuff for the commander, of course. And we'll go in there and just kind of check things out. See how the war's going. <laughs> See how the war's going. Send your son in, you know. And David is, I'm sure, excited about this. He's got a, three older brothers that are in the battle. And he's getting to go over there. Think about that today. You know, hey, Josiah, why don't you, uh, we'll fly you over, you know, when Caleb was in Afghanistan. We'll fly you over there and just check up on Caleb and see how he's doing, that kind of stuff, and come back with some information. Yeah, take some chocolate-covered kisses and almonds and M&Ms, give him that kind of stuff. You know, what an interesting thought that David is going to be sent down. How different it was in those days, the warring concepts, that they literally would just kind of get on opposite ends, come down, do a little battle, go home, have a little coffee break or whatever they do. And in this process, that's where David's going. He's going, and I'm sure he's pretty excited about the opportunity to see his brothers, but more than anything else, probably to see a little bit of the, mm, the stuff that's happening because he's a young man and he's dealt with violence as a shepherd himself, as we will find out as we go through this. So off David goes, he runs down or hustles down to the battle area and he finds the supply officer and he gives over the goods and gives instruction. This goes to my brothers, this goes to the commander, et cetera, et cetera. And he gets the chance to go down to the front lines where his brothers are. What a cool thing. He gets to go right down in the thick of it as they start to mount the attack or whatever. They move on down into the valley and down comes Goliath. He steps out of his ranks and he just bellers out in verse 23, I think it is. He just bellers out his typical thing. Anybody want to take me on? You know, let's just supple this man to man kind of thing. Your God, I defy him. I defy your armies. And he just rants and raves about um, the Israelites and how weak they are and their God. And that they need to, to send somebody to come battle him. And, and David hears all this along about verse 23. He says, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. And when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now, I'm, I'm thinking, I know I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but you know, it's, a big, it's a big army. And there's probably a group of people that tend to walk down into the front lines most every day. And there's a bunch of people in the back lines. And they've been hearing rumors day after day after day about this mountain of this guy that's down there. And he keeps defying the armies of Israel and God and everything. And so every day when they go down, there's a handful of new guys that are standing here really kind of gawking to see this freak of nature. 
that's defying and it's terrifying. And so every day there's new guys saying, man, did you see that guy? Did you see what he said? Did you hear what he said? And all these kind of stuff. And, and David overhears them saying, so if I got this right now, uh, whoever takes this guy on and, and, and takes him and cleans him out and beats him up and, and kills him, he gets the king's daughter in marriage. He's, he's pretty cool. I like that. And uh, boy, no taxes and all these benefits start to show up. The little perks for the person who takes on the giant and defeats him. And David hears this and he says, what was that you just, what was that? And he starts to go to people and they repeat it to him all over again. And he, he's like really intrigued and he goes to somebody else and asks them. And his brother Eliab says, David, what are you doing here? And he's irritated. Now the, the brothers may have been in and out of the front lines a handful of times and are really stressed out about what's going on. Realizing they can't really do anything about this and they're kind of scared. And here's their little brother standing in here, nosing around, trying to find out what's going on here. What's this about the king saying this, that, and the other? And why is this guy defying our God and, and the Israelites? And, and Eliab's just really frustrated with David and mocks David. See, why don't you go back to your little sheep and go play with the little fuzzballs and do what you're supposed to do and leave us alone. We got men's work here. You go back and do your thing. But David, being the nice, obedient little brother that he is, kind of tore a hat of there and said, no. And he continues to press the issue and asking around. And somehow this curious little shepherd boy and his curiosity about the whole thing gets to Saul. It's impressing people either negatively or positively, but it's causing Saul to be informed about this shepherd man, David, running about asking persistently about what's going on here. And so Saul, around verse 31, sends for David. And so we pick that part up. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. In verse 32, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Uh, I'm sure Saul was a little perplexed about this. He's got a whole mountain of trained soldiers, and none of them are really interested in taking on this giant. And here comes this little shepherd boy who hasn't really got any experience with man-to-man warfare. And he says, don't worry about it. I got it. I got your back. You know, those t-shirts you see all the time. I got your back. We got it. We'll take care of this. David, I don't know if he even understands what he's really saying. He's taking upon himself, he's willing to take upon himself the whole responsibility of the nation of Israel. Because remember, if he loses, they become slaves to the Philistines. And I don't think that's even a thought in his mind. He just says, I'll do it. I'm ready to go. Saul, being smart, says this. uh, Saul, uh, Saul says, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. So that's Saul's response in this process. Um, David comes back with this comment. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, and I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it, and I killed it both the lion and the bear. And because this big guy is defying the armies of Israel, God, and defying God as well, God will help me defeat him like I have defeated both the lion and the bear. Now, 
I propose a couple things that are intriguing in this process. First of all, David's childlike faith. It it can be nothing more than a childlike faith to go out there and say, I don't know what's wrong with you guys, but I'll take him on. When David looks at Goliath, he sees a lion, a tiger, things that he's overcome with God's help. He doesn't see this nine-foot-tall giant and all the armor and all the other things. He sees someone that he's going to take out. All the others didn't see that. They were not looking through the filter of God's eyes, so to speak. They were looking through man's eyes. And Saul was looking through man's eyes and trying to be realistic and explain to David, you you don't have a chance. But after David explains all this to Saul on the second little conversational piece, Saul's eyes are opened to a degree. And in verse 37, he says, go and the Lord be with you. Shift gears for a minute to another story in the Old Testament. Joseph and there's Potiphar, and, and Joseph had become a part of Potiphar's household through the uh, sale. His brother sold Joseph into, you know, into slavery, so to speak. And, and Joseph was just a sharp guy. And he rose up within Potiphar's home and did great things. And Potiphar was just, just having all kinds of success on the account of Joseph. But then Potiphar's wife lies, and there's a fake little deal, and Joseph lands in jail. While in jail, people, he starts again to just be the man of God that he is. And, and people are attracted to him. And he rises up and he becomes one of the, the head dudes in the, in the jail service system down there within behind bars all the time. And a couple guys have dreams. And they're kind of perplexed and nervous. And Joseph picks up on it and they talk. And he, he helps them with their dreams and explains, here's what's going to happen. And one had some good news and one had some bad news. And eventually they are released. And the truth happens. One dies and, and one lives. Years later, and and Joseph had hoped that they would tell the the Pharaoh about this, but it didn't happen that way. Well, years later, the Pharaoh has this horrible dream, and he's panicked, and he's confused, and and he's perplexed. And I think it's the cupbearer, one of the two, who is still living and is is in the Pharaoh's um, uh, administration and and what have you, remembers Joseph. And he goes, oh, Pharaoh, I'm sorry, I really blew this, but there's a guy I think that might be able to help you. His name is Joseph. He's in prison. So they send for Joseph. Joseph comes out. And he stands before the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh explains everything that took place. And Joseph said, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's, what, here's, the, here's what's happening here. You've got, God is revealed to you for a reason. This is important. There's going to be seven years of plenty. You're gonna, the crops are going to be booming. You're going to love it. It's going to be incredible for seven years. Unbelievable, unbelievable success. However, followed by those seven years of success, we're going to have seven years of famine. And we're going to have nothing. There's going to be a barren land. And the God... God Almighty is revealing this to you so that during those seven years of plenty, you might be able to prepare and store enough to get us through the seven years of famine. So you're going to have to get somebody that's pretty sharp and knows what they're doing. And the Pharaoh thinks a little bit, and this is where I see a very similar relationship or response between the Pharaoh and Joseph and David and, and Saul. The Pharaoh looks at Joseph and said, you know what? You're the man for the job. You seem to be in tune with God. You seem to see the big picture. I want you to be that man. Saul, David, nobody else has offered anything. David seems in tune with God. David has no fear. You know what? You're the man for the job. I want you to go and represent the Israelites and represent our God against Goliath. And so I think there's a really interesting process there. Saul's eyes have been opened and he sees ever so small, ever so lightly, slightly, this young boy 
who really loves God and believes he can overcome the enemy. So David gets prepared for battle now, verses 38 and 40. And I think that's a kind of a comical little scene. You can have a lot of fun with that one as well. He throws on, I mean, think about this now. He is a young teen probably, and he's getting to put on the king's armor, the tunic, the armor. He's getting the sword. I mean, I can think of our gang and how it was cool back in our home to have, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings was a big deal back in when we were over there in the Czech Republic, and the one who had that, I don't know what the name of the sword was, but the sword that was the, the little blue sword that lit up, who was that one? Sting. Sting. That was the cool sword to have. And I could just picture David sitting there, whoa, baby, this is cool. <laughs> this is really cool. You know, and he can't, he can't do much with it because he's weighted down and it's a huge sword and he's not used to these kind of things. But man, this is the key stuff. And there's a, I think there's a little... Little battle, but all of a sudden, just like before, David's eyes don't lose sight of God. And he doesn't choose man's options, all this armor and this sword. He chooses the options that he knows God has helped him before defeat the lion and the bear. So he gets rid of everything and he grabs some stones and the shepherd's staff and he goes off to battle. Again, he remains focused on God. He doesn't lose the ability to know it's God who this is about. It's not about man. It's not about Goliath or any of these other things. And I think that's just a, a very, again, just it's a, it's a fun piece of the story, but it's practical for us to understand. David remains faithful and convicted that this is about God. And stones or staff, it doesn't matter what it is. It's, it's what I know and it's what I know God can do through me. And so David is ready to go to battle. So he goes to battle. Goliath meets him. And he mocks David and makes fun of him. He's going to, you know, you come at me like I'm a dog and makes all these fun comments and, and threatens David. I'm going to rip you shred to shred and feed the birds your flesh and all this kind of stuff. Really exciting, you know. I'm sure David's like, oh, that sounds really fun, you know. Um, I don't, you know, an interesting thing, but David doesn't, isn't phased by it. And he thinks back through and his comments are simply this. And he, he really cuts to the point. He says, it's not about you, Goliath. It's, it's not about me. It's not about our weapons or your weapons. It's all about God. That's really what this is about. You have chosen to battle God today. You've defied God. You defied the army of God. And you are going to pay the price. And because of that, I'm going to win. Because I'm walking with God. And you're not. And this is not going to be a pretty scene, buddy. And he just fires right back. So innocent, yet so confident is his faith and his focus on who God is and what God will accomplish. People will see and know that God is alive today. And it isn't you who make the rules, by the way. Now, you changed everything up and you decided, okay, it's one-on-one. You know what? It's God who's going to determine who wins this battle. And so I come at you in the name of God. And so that's David's uh, counter um, comments to to Goliath in those moments. And so the battle, it isn't a long battle, folks. It's really quick. It's, if you paid admission to go down to the, the boxing ring and to watch a 15-round fight between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier or something like that, and you sat down in about two seconds, it's over, you'd feel kind of bummed. And I think, you know, people who were all gathered around for the big moment, oh, they finally got somebody to challenge Goliath. And who is this? And everybody's gathered around and pow, pow, down, done. It's over. It's just that quick. David just grabs a stone, sling, Pow, kills him, knocks him down. And it's a done deal. It's just that quick. There's no, uh, none of this really crazy scenes of dodging 
the spear and the sword as it swings by. It's just a, a quick, um, quick process. Such is the faith of David. It was just simple and to the point. God is going to win this battle. So let's reflect just for a moment as we review this. What are the key issues, again, in this passage? I think for me, it's all about the focus in the big picture, in the big scheme of things. The Israelites lost their focus early on. They got scared because they saw this mountain of a man. And that focus just kept mounting up, and they became more and more fearful of the situation. And they allowed this man to determine the rules and things. I remember as a, as a child, we moved to the Adirondack Mountains from North Carolina. And what an extreme that was. Living on the coast, on the ocean, and then going up into the mountains. You couldn't, it's just incredible extremes. And I was about 13, 12, 13 years old when we made that move. And my dad is a fourth generation guideboat builder, Adirondack guideboat. And it's a very rare and unique uh, wooden vessel anywhere from 16 to 18 feet in length. And they're, they're, they're open. They're natural ribs, the wood, the ribs for these boats are cut out of the spruce knee or out of the rib or the uh, roots of a spruce tree. They're natural shaped, very strong boats, very lightweight, 60 pounds, 50 pounds, whatever. And they were introduced to the Adirondacks by guides because they had trouble getting around with canoes effectively and quickly. And so they decided to develop some kind of boat that would be more practical, could carry more weight and be quicker. And hence the Adirondack guide boat was developed back in the 1800s. And the trade continued on over the years, and my dad is currently one of the last original builder of the Adirondack guideboat by its original sense. Not, most of them are fiberglass nowadays or part fiberglass and part wood. When we moved to the Adirondacks back in 1971, um, dad threw me into a guideboat that he had built, his first one ever, and said, row. <laughs> kind of like throw the kid in the water and go for it. I was the youngest of the boys, and I started to row around. And these oars, they're eight feet long, and they overlap by about a foot and a half when you're rowing. And you go the opposite direction. Nothing made sense to me in this boat, trust me. Everything was just weird about it. Like, why would you have oars overlapping? Because every time it went like this, bam, bam. I had busted knuckles and blisters, and it was a mess. And I thought, this is crazy. Who would ever want to use this thing? But slowly, I became used to the boat. And I kind of liked it. And it was a unique thing. And I could hop in, and I could just... Scoot by people in canoes, even racing canoes. And dad then told me, you know what? They have races for these things all over the Adirondacks. And I thought, that'll be fun. And so I started to enter races and I started to win races. My dad had told me one thing in the very beginning of this, and I share this with you, for my success on the Adirondack guideboat, right on through racing in 44-mile races down to one-mile sprints. He said this, son, when you get in that water, you're going to sit there and you're going to be sitting in the water and you've got to find something on the shore or maybe a buoy or a big rock in the water and you've got to line up the back of your boat on that thing and when they say go and the gun sounds, you just row for all your worth away from that object but make sure you're pointing in the right direction when you line up to start with and just row and you don't have to spend the whole time looking over your shoulder to know where you're going because if you head away from that piece, you're going to be okay there and you'll have to check maybe every 30 or 40 or 50 strokes as opposed to every other stroke, like most people do. And you know what? It worked. I just had to focus. And I, I just focused on that piece. And I knew that that rock wasn't going anywhere. I knew that tree wasn't going anywhere. And I could win races time and time again. Not because I was fast and strong, just because I kept focus. And I went down the races. I was beating people five, six, seven years older than me when I was 13 years old. All because of a technique and a trick that my dad had told me. Focus. It really is important. Don't lose focus on God like the Israelites did. David never did. He trusted in God. He believed that God was his help. And with the talents that God had given him, that would be enough to defeat Goliath. God is in charge of the battle. God's in charge of the battles of our lives. Not Satan. Not your friends. 
Not the IRS, not your employer. God's in charge. He really, really is in charge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Trust God. Focus on God. Let him secure the victory. Not the Philistines. Not the Philistines. So, are you in a battle today? Have you lost your focus? Are you having a hard time seeing God in the midst of the battles of your life? Whether it's you're grieving or it's employment or whatever it might be that is hounding at you and is stealing away your joy. Has the enemy got you thinking you haven't got a chance? I'm here to say you do. You have a great chance. Remember, God is in charge of the battles of our life. He knows all about them. Nothing, as I mentioned last week, nothing's going to come our way that isn't common to man. And God is faithful. He's not going to let us overcome over something with something that we can't handle if we choose him and his way out. We just need to focus on God and see him. He's the one who determines the rules of the battle. Choose him and let him do battle with and for you. And you will win. You will win. Luke chapter 1 Nothing is impossible with God. Jesus, or the angel, said that to Mary as she was hearing that she's now pregnant or will be pregnant with the baby Jesus. And Elizabeth, who's been barren for all her life, is also pregnant, by the way. Nothing is impossible with God. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these stories in the Old Testament. Wow, they are so cool. But, Lord, they are there for a reason. They're there to remind us on different characters of who you are and, and sometimes the sin that we dig our, ourselves into as we see these examples of different people. And we thank you for David in his life. And, yeah, Lord, we know he messed up at different times too. But we also see some great things that he accomplished as a young man. And, uh, Lord, today, as we go through this day and the days ahead, Strengthen us, encourage us, remind us of David. And remind us, more importantly, Lord, of the focus of David onto you, that we might do the same, that we would become focused and trusting and, and know that you are our God and you will enable us to overcome the various obstacles that come our way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.